Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, before we get started, I just want to point to the wake-up call that the Donald Trump CNN town hall was for me and I think so many of us. It was a reminder of who and what Donald Trump is, why he will never be better, he will always be worse, and why we must do everything in our power to ensure that he never becomes president again. I'd love it if you'd go to jointheunion.us and sign up to join our growing army of activists around the country. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Victor Xi, writer, speaker, organizer, and the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden in 2020. He's host of the podcast On The Move, co-host of the iGen Politics podcast, and a contributor for Resolute Square. His written work has been published by outlets like USA Today, The Hill, and Daily Herald. And his on-air commentary has been featured on networks like MSNBC, CNN, and the PBS NewsHour. Today, he's coming to us from the campus of UCLA, where he's studying American literature and culture. Victor, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So it doesn't seem like you seem busy enough. What year are you at UCLA? <laughs> Currently a third year. And Google Calendar is my best friend for uh, trying to get everything done in, in a day. I guess so. Well, I mean, when I was your age, well, let's just put it this way. When I was your age, we won't talk about the things I was doing when I was your age. But I'm certainly appreciative that you are doing the things you're doing. So talk to us a little bit about how you got into this, because you noted before we started recording, you're from Chicago. It seems like you must have started this before you could drive a car, certainly before you got to college. How did you decide that at such a young age you wanted to make politics such a core part of your life? This really started when I was in eighth grade. I was sitting in classroom in my social studies class when I was in eighth grade, and my social studies teacher was lecturing about the political spectrum because it was about two weeks before the 2016 Iowa caucuses, and I knew nothing about politics. The class really knew nothing about politics, and she said, look, this is what's happening in our current system right now. You have Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton on one end, you have Donald Trump on the other end, and as young people, you all can make a really key difference if you just get involved, and at the time, I was really not doing much. I was playing video games. I was just doing what eighth graders at the time usually do. And so I internalized her advice and I joined a local congressional campaign. I uh, interned for Congressman Brad Schneider in Illinois, who has since become a leading advocate for gun violence prevention. But at the time, I was just knocking on doors, making phone calls. And as I'm sure anyone who has done that before, it's really as kind of nasty of a process as it is, it does also make you feel like you're a part of something bigger than yourself. You get to contribute to something actually meaningful and actually know how to talk to people. And that was something that I really enjoyed. So I was on his campaign throughout high school. And then one senior year hit my AP government teacher, which I guess speaks to the power of teachers because every moment and kind of high school and middle school really came from teachers. 
My high school government teacher told me that as long as you turn 18 by election day in November, you can run to become a delegate. And so I threw my name in the ring and ran to become a delegate. And then since then has just been a wild journey organizing on the Biden campaign and then doing a lot of work around Gen Zers. But it really started in eighth grade with my social studies teacher, who I will never forget because of that. Well, and let me just say, whoever that teacher is in the greater Chicagoland area, thank you. You know, I remember my eighth grade civics teacher. I grew up in Washington, D.C. and in politics. And if I had done nothing other than take that eighth grade civics class, I probably wouldn't have been politically oriented. So let's talk about this. So you are a delegate at 17 in the 20 election. What have you seen from your perspective? And I want to talk about Gen Z a lot, but from your perspective, what have you seen since that election, you know, about the country? And I ask you that as someone who, again, I have two kids who are sort of the other end of Generation Z. I mean, you're probably right in the middle, but they're the tail end of what will eventually be the end of Generation Z. So what have you seen in the country, good, bad, or otherwise, since Joe Biden's election in 2020? I think there have been both good and bad fronts. I think the good front is that I really think that Democrats are starting to pay attention to Gen Zers. And I think elected officials aren't casting us off, aren't ignoring us like they used to do. And I think part of the reason I'm sure we can get to this later in the conversation is because Gen Zers really have shown throughout the past few elections that we are showing up, that we are turning out to vote. And then it's hard to kind of ignore us. I mean, you look at the demographic trends in America, and it seems like the closest races are decided because Gen Zers turned out and voted in greater numbers than prior elections. And so I think for Democrats and President Biden, they've done a significantly better job at engaging Gen Zers and delivering for the issues that we care about. But I think on the broader scale as a country, I do think a lot of things are concerning. I mean, you have this Republican Party that is doubling down on its efforts to try to suppress young voters. You have a Republican Party that is doubling down on its efforts to restrict key rights from abortion to voting rights to any other just fundamental rights that young people care about. And so it feels like more than ever before, at least in this moment since 2020, that our lives are under attack in a sustained way that we've never really experienced before. And one of the reasons why I felt compelled to get involved in 2016 wasn't just because of kind of just the ability of myself making change, but also because of the moment that we were finding ourselves in with Trump eroding institutional norms, doing so much to degrade people of color and other countries. And so I thought that would be kind of the end of it. But as we've seen, it's not been the end of it. You have Trump continuing to attack people of color. You have Republicans across the federal and, and state levels trying to kind of suppress our rights. And so it's just getting worse and worse. And I think for a lot of young people now, you're, you're seeing this awakening that at least I've never seen before. Let me ask you this. We saw last year, to your point, I do think that your generation saved our bacon. And we saw it specifically, not surprisingly, in college towns like Madison, Wisconsin in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where the kids came out. I'm going to call you kids, but I promise you it's not pejorative. In, in overwhelming numbers for people like Tony Evers and Gretchen Whitmer. And, you know, do you think a lot of that, was it just Dobbs? Was it just the overturning of Roe v. Wade? Or was there something else you think that was in the ether, in the air, that made so many people of your cohort say, you know what, we're not going to sit back. We're actually going to show up. So I think it's twofold. I think first is, like you said, you have the political moment that we're living in right now where you have the fall of Dobbs, you have Republicans coming after young people on our rights. And I think that's a big part of it because young people see what the Republican Party is doing and they're rejecting that 
in pretty significant numbers. But I also think at the other hand, you have more Democratic officials who are actually meeting young voters where they are. And that means not just on kind of in-person college campus locations, but also a lot on social media. And so you look at people like Gretchen Whitmer or even in the latest Wisconsin Supreme Court election, Janet Protozowicz, I mean, really going on social media, engaging with young voters that way and also on college campuses. But you see that kind of sustained outreach to young voters in a way that elected officials never really used to do. And so I think it's both a combination of Republicans doing what they're doing to get rid of the rights that we care about, the fall of Dobbs, trying to make it harder for us to vote. You have Texas now trying to ban all college dropbox locations. But on the other hand, you also have, I think, Democrats doing a much better job of actually meeting young voters where they are, which is on social media, which is on digital spaces. And I think that really makes a big difference in showing young voters that, you know, we can actually make a difference and that, you know, our voices matter in this process and that elected officials are paying attention to us and they're trying to reach us where we are. Do you think that the level of turnout for Democratic candidates by Gen Z is an indication of how many of them identify as big D Democrats? Or is it, you know, we don't really like any of these people, but we're certainly not going to vote for Republicans. And Democrats tend to be more aligned, even if we think they have their own problems with our values, you know, with our belief system. I guess, do you think they identify as Democrats? I think that's one of the most fascinating things about this generation is when you look at the data and when you look at survey responses about, you know, which political party do you identify with? The majority of young people actually don't solidly identify with a political party. They actually are mostly consider themselves independents. And when you ask them why that is, a lot of them will say because they're value driven or they're issues driven voters. And that applies even beyond politics. When you think of Gen Zers and the workforce that we choose, a lot of Gen Zers don't choose workforces if they don't match their values. And so when you look at politics, that's basically the same where you see elected officials and what values they're trying to push forward, young people will align with the candidates who they believe align with their values. And overwhelmingly, those values are trying to protect reproductive rights, civil rights, voting rights, but also just trying to make our lives better. So you have issues like gun violence, which affects pretty much every single young person in this country, which has had to endure lockdown drills. You have climate change, seeing our planet go through increasing natural disasters. So all of these values are really kind of core markers of our identity. And so when we go to the ballot box, you want to make sure that the candidates who we're voting for match our values. And increasingly, those candidates happen to align with the Democratic Party. But it's not so much because we identify so much with the Democratic Party, but it's because those Democrats running for office have actually either, one, proven that they've engaged with us on those issues, or two, they're running a campaign that proves to us that they are willing to engage with those issues. And Republicans just really aren't at this point. How would you describe the generational trauma of school shootings? I think it's really apparent and very visceral. When you look at Gen Zers and kind of the moment that we're in right now, I mean, you have Gen Zers across the country having to go through mass shooter drills. Myself, I come from, like you said, Illinois. We had to do one per semester where we had to lock the doors. We had to go uh, and hide and make sure that we couldn't see the window because if we saw the window, then the shooter would see us. And so we had to go through these drills and it's just traumatizing no matter what age you are, no matter where you come from. It's something that, you know, honestly should never happen in a country, but we're in this moment because you have a Republican party that has just frankly kind of not acted on this issue. And I think young people see that more than ever before, but it's just kind of makes us fearful about what we can even do with our lives. We can't go to school without having to fear whether or not we're going to be the next victims of gun violence. We can't go to the grocery store. Really no public spaces now are immune from gun violence. And so for this generation, it is traumatizing. And we are a generation that's living in fear. But at the same time, what gives me hope 
hope is that this is a generation that doesn't allow that trauma and that fear to get in the way of political activism. You see young people still going out on the streets and making their voices heard. And I think that's what's kind of remarkable at this moment is that as bad as it is, you see young people still going out to the streets and voting and making their voices heard. And that's promising to me. Well, maybe it's because that's how you guys see the world, because there's also this hyper individualism. I mean, look, it's been part of the United States since we were around, right? We all have this rugged sort of I can do it kind of thing. Gen Z seems to take that to another level altogether, including the relationships you build, whether or not you're going to get married, whether or not you're going to have kids, the fact that you're totally willing to work remotely. So how do you take that hyper individualism and compile a large group of individuals into a mass movement politically that all rose in the same direction? Yeah, I mean, it's such a good question because on one hand, this generation is more empathetic than ever before. But on the other hand, just like you said, I think a lot of the decisions that we make for ourselves are very individualistic and you have social media, I think, being a big contributor to that. But I think at the end of the day, when, when you look at Gen Zers and when you look at even just kind of the language we use, we are kind of what they dub as the pluralistic generation. We're on the one hand, for our own lives, I think we are very individualistic. And when we look at when we think of, you know, the things that we want to do, it's again, values driven. At the end of the day, we want to make sure that the things that we do in our lives match with those values. But on the other hand, we don't really think of things without thinking of our peers, too. And so when you think of this political moment that we're in right now, Gen Zers think of things in terms of we, not I. When you think of voting habits of Gen Zers and kind of how we think about things like climate change and gun violence, we want to make sure that everyone is at the table. And I think that's kind of the fascinating part of its generation is that there is a lot of individualistic aspects of it, but there's a lot of also collectivist aspects of it where you see Gen Zers really coming together and knowing that there is a power in our movement. I think part of it is because when we look at the systems that are built around us, those just aren't working anymore. And so we kind of know that the only way that we can make a difference is either through us getting involved or kind of Gen Z is really coming together and building mass movements to counter those systems. And so deep down inside, we know that there is kind of a level of empathy and connection with our peers because everyone at the end of the day is going through a lot of similar situations. And that's what's special about this generation is that you have a lot of these kind of patterns and themes reverberating across this generation. And I think that's what kind of at the end of the day keeps us united and keeps us kind of tacitly organizing. It's interesting too to see you all are the first totally native, just about 21st century generation. You will not, for the most part, probably remember any part of the 1900s in any real way. You, just like my kids, don't know a world without the internet, some without social media. But certainly, I remember buying my wife her first iPhone in 2007. It wasn't a very good phone. It wasn't very good for the internet. And I didn't really know what an app was, right? And you could absolutely <laughs> live without it. Now you all, you're plugged into every facet of society, technology, information, each other, everything else. And I think that's really hard for us as the graybeards to understand the difference in perspective, if that makes sense, which is the things that we had to go looking for, we literally had to go to the library and go to the Dewey Decimal System in a card file. But you all, I look at my kids, Victor, and I look at folks like you, you're already so much smarter and more informed about what's going on in the world than I could possibly have been when I was 10 or 15 or 20. Again, I grew up in Washington, D.C. I always had, you know, awareness of politics. But the truth is we were probably blissfully ignorant that we were able to live in the bubble that frankly surrounded us because if I was in my car driving home from high school, 
there wasn't anything outside of a CD I was listening to or the radio and the car in front of me and the car behind me. That was my world at that moment. Whereas you all carry the world with you wherever you go. And I think that must be both very liberating in some ways, but I wonder too, was my ignorance bliss in some way? I mean, I think social media, it's such a kind of tricky question because on the one hand, like you said, it's given us more access to information. It's allowed us to be more digitally connected with our peers. It's, I think, done a lot of good for this world. But on the other hand, I do worry about a lot of different aspects of social media. You mentioned back in your day how you had to go to the library actually and, and find things without just searching it up on the internet. And now we're seeing the rise of AI. And, and one of the things that I'm concerned about is just kind of the rise of ChatGPT and what that does to curiosity, what that does to kind of your ability to understand the process of things. And so there is a real concern on that end. But on the other hand, I do think social media has done so much and technology has allowed us to do so much, especially in the political sphere, when you're trying to reach voters, when you're trying to get people to understand what's going on in our system. I think that's allowed us to do so much. I mean, organizing has gone from in-person to even digital organizing. I mean, there's a huge space now on TikTok, on Instagram, where people can launch movements just on social media. And that in itself is powerful. And I think allows us always to feel connected with each other, even if we aren't connected in person, but at least on social media, we feel like we're a part of this broader community. But I think it's such a kind of complex question because you have so much that social media does for good. But on the other hand, just like you said, there is, I think, a lot of things that social media has done wrong for our society. And I think we have to think about ways to mitigate those harms for young people because things like loneliness, I think those things have increased. You have relationships that are, you know, the quality of in-person relationships has gone down and we have to find a way to return to that time. But I think social media is a very complex situation and, and there's a lot of good bond and a lot of bad too. Have you seen in your work in particular, because you talk about the ability of social media to organize, which I think is good, but have you seen a corresponding willingness on the part of other politically active young people to come together in person? Are you willing to actually sit in a room together, attend a meeting, do whatever that is that's not on Zoom? You and I are looking at each other on Zoom, and there is, I can see your facial expressions, you can see mine, but I'd rather be talking to you in person. But have you had any trouble actually getting other young activists together in person? Because for me, it's always been, even if there's a little bit of friction, and there's certainly always friction with in-person human contact, it also sort of builds a bond once in a while, almost like Velcro, right? The hook and the fuzz or whatever they call that stuff. So I'm not quite sure about the in-person aspect. I mean, I haven't been a part of kind of any sustained kind of, I don't know, like retreat or anything that kind of has all the young activists together in one space. But I think that also speaks to the power of social media and kind of this post-COVID world, maybe that had to contribute to it. Because at the end of the day, you can have people across the country, and I'm a part of an organization called Voters of Tomorrow, and we have people literally in every single state, but through Zoom, through social media, we can all kind of come together and organize through DMs or through Slack. And I think that in itself is powerful. But I will say this in terms of organizing other of our peers, social media is an incredibly powerful tool, obviously, and I think getting information across. But I think what makes more of the difference, and young people have been very, very receptive to this, is this new kind of tactic in the organizing space called peer-to-peer -peer interactions. That doesn't really come through kind of in-person interactions, but more individual interactions. So what I mean by that is, you know, you can use something like Twitter or Instagram to get a message across. But we'll actually kind of move the needle on someone who might be hesitant to vote or someone who might not go out and vote on election day is if your peer has a conversation with another peer. So if a student has a conversation with another student, that's what really makes the difference. And I think those 
individual conversations, those quality conversations, also what's known as relational organizing does make a big difference with young people. And I think, you know, as powerful as social media is, what we've seen, at least in the organizing that we've been able to do is that those individual conversations, those quality conversations make even bigger of an impact in terms of getting young people to the ballot box and understanding the civics process. And you see what from those conversations that young people are more likely not only to go out there and vote, but they're more likely also to carry on those conversations to their other friends and kind of do a ripple effect. So I think social media does kind of have an effect to a limit, but I think those individual peer-to-peer conversations ultimately make the biggest impact. And that's what we're trying to do in this organizing space is going beyond social media and also doing more kind of one-on-one conversations with our peers. Let me ask you this. You know, we were talking the other day about voter targeting and we were doing a meeting. Somebody was asking us about broadcast television. And we said, well, yeah, we can buy broadcast television. It's been a dinosaur of a medium for decades at this point. But, you know, I'm like, if you just want to make sure we don't reach anybody under 40, sure, we should buy as much (laughs) TV in Grand Rapids, Michigan as you want to. So who are the messengers that younger voters are willing to accept? And is social media the media, I guess, or the medium by which they are going to receive, if not all their information, then the vast majority of it? Yeah. So in order to answer that question, I think you have to look at kind of where young voters consume their information. And like you said, that just overwhelmingly is not coming from cable news outlets. I mean, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but when you look at the 20 to 29 year old demographic of audience members on CNN or MSNBC or Fox, I mean, it's just way, way lower than older generations. Well, it's listen, let's be clear. It's boring and it's not very good television. <laughs> that is true. It's, it's only for a specific audience and young people just don't have the time. I don't think they have the attention, the capacity to watch cable news outlets. And frankly, I don't think cable news outlets are very geared for young people. And you just look at the ads that are on TV. I mean, it's pretty much all geared towards an older generation. And so when you look at where young people are and kind of which platforms we use to consume information, it's overwhelmingly YouTube, TikTok, or Instagram. And those three places are where I think when you're elected officials thinking about what message will land, you have to go on those three mediums. And then on the other hand, you also find that for young people, they're just not listening to pundits, to elected officials to President Biden for that matter. And so that's where I think I'm going to give the White House some credit because what they've been able to do is they've been able to find key influencers and activists on those different platforms on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram and convey their talking points and messages and accomplishments to those people who can actually speak to our peers. Because like I said earlier, for Gen Zers, the most trusted messengers are our peers. We will listen to people who are our age because we feel like we can identify with them more. We feel like older people just don't really understand our concerns. And so part of the way that you reach Gen Zers is, first of all, going on those different platforms and making sure that you have an account to reach Gen Zers where they consume their information, but also making sure that the people who are conveying that information are as close to us in age as possible. And so that's why I think you're seeing so many um, young people trying to do that and go into those spaces where there is a higher likelihood that young people will pause and actually watch the video because they see, oh, that's one of us. And that's someone who also cares about politics. And maybe I can do that too. And so I think those different platforms and those young people are going to be the key messengers that young people listen to. There's an old movie. I mean, I think it came out probably when I was in college, Victor. I think it was either Billy Madison or the other one from Adam Sandler and Steve Buscemi. I think he plays an undercover cop or something. He's clearly in his like 40s. And he's got like a hat on backwards and he's got a skateboard. He goes, hello, fellow kids. Um, And, you know, I feel like if I were talking to you and a bunch of your friends, like that's sort of the impression you get. (laughs) It's like, what is this guy doing here? But let's talk about you mentioned President Biden. You you posted on Twitter, I think, as we're recording today, that a recent survey had 61 percent of Gen Z voters 
have a positive viewpoint of President Biden. Now, if you read the mainstream media, you know, there's a lot of, you know, gnashing of teeth and renting of garments about the fact that the president is an older guy and that, you know, how is this going to impact, you know, the 2024 election? But based on 61 percent approval of, you know, 18 to 25 year olds, that seems to be that the future of the country is OK with the past of the country. Yeah. And one of my favorite lines that President Biden always says is, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And I think you can kind of look at this, I think, two ways. The first is, I think, you know, I think young people also, for at least the conversations I have and some of the polling that we've done is, you know, we are concerned about his age. I think no one can ignore that fact that he's 80 years old. He's going to run for president again. He's going to be 82 or 83 by the time he's elected in 2024, 2025 when that happens or if that happens. But for young people, we can't ignore that fact. But at the end of the day, when you look at who he's running against, young people overwhelmingly will say that they're going to vote for Joe Biden over Donald Trump. And I think there's two reasons. First, because the alternative is just so much worse. I mean, a Trump presidency like we saw in 2016 is just not good for anyone, especially young people who care about our livelihoods and our rights. But on the other hand, you really just have to look at this administration's record. And it hasn't been perfect. It hasn't been amazing. But it's been pretty darn good for young people in the issues that we care about. I mean, starting with a pretty historic gun reform legislation last summer, you have Inflation Reduction Act, which invested a historic amount in climate change. You have a pretty diverse administration more than ever before. I think more women, more people of color, more LGBTQ plus people in this administration. So really on so many different issues, this administration has delivered for us. And I think now young people are starting to feel the impacts of that. And the closer we get to 2024, that's when those programs are going to start really coming into formation and young people are going to start seeing that. And also, I think on the other hand, the more time that passes and just last week, Voters of Tomorrow, we did a poll that found um, about 54% of young people supported Joe Biden. Now, a week later, post-CNN Town Hall, post-Eugene Carroll, 61% of young people are now supporting Joe Biden and approve of his presidency. So it's, I think the numbers are increasing. And part of that is because of this Republican Party that is doing so much and that's kind of so anti-young people, so anti our values, but also because President Biden is continuing to, I think, do the work necessary to engage with us. And the other thing that I think is important about President Biden in 2024 that I think a lot of mainstream media sometimes forgets is the role that Vice President Kamala Harris plays in this. When you look at a lot of the polling, you see young people supporting Vice President Harris at way higher numbers than older generations. I think last week there was a poll that showed young people supporting Vice President Harris at more than 28 points more than older demographics. And I think part of the reason why that is is because Vice President Harris really represents everything that young people want to see in a kind of leader. We want to see someone who's diverse. We want to see someone who is a person of color, who's a woman. And I think President Biden, even though he's old, having someone like Vice President Harris really shows young people that he still cares about having younger, more diverse people on the ticket and in positions of power. And I think that matters for young people. And I think that's part of the reason why at the end of the day, even though we have concerns about President Biden, we will still vote for him because he is the better candidate. He is the candidate who has actually delivered on a lot of the issues that we care about. But Victor, what you are demonstrating is something that most activists, but also most leaders and most generational leaders are unable to comprehend, which is a youthful idealism a desire for knowing what you want out of your life, your culture, your future, your country, with an understanding of he's not perfect, the administration's not perfect, nothing is perfect, and do you really want that guy? And for a lot of folks, it's I don't like anybody, or he's too old, she's too this, as opposed to, hey, 
you want this guy back? Because I think we've noticed anyway, Victor, and I'd be interested to see what you and your group are thinking is, I think that last week you mentioned the Carroll verdict and the town hall, I think was a wake up call for a lot of people. I mean, we've seen an uptick in activity for sure. Look, I think probably a lot of our listeners are probably around my age, right around my demographic, everything else. But we've certainly seen an uptick. What are you guys seeing? Do you think that was a touch point for a lot of people going, oh, gosh, not again, not again? Yeah, because I think last week, I mean, I'll just take the CNN town hall specifically. I don't think anyone tuned into the CNN town hall. But what we did see and what a lot of my peers saw were the clips that were posted on Instagram were the clips that were posted on TikTok of Donald Trump calling Caitlin Collins a nasty woman, attacking Adrian Carroll, lying about the 2020 election. So we still see these things in just shorter form. But it's another reminder for young people about the threat and the danger that a second Trump presidency would pose. And so I think for a lot of young people, too, it was a wake up call because we were scrolling on social media and we saw those clips right in front of us about, you know, Donald Trump has not changed. He's even worse than he was in 2020. And that was his first moment that kind of we saw, you know, this is a man who just is not going to change. He's never going to change. And so I think that was, like you said, another reminder for people to realize kind of what this person would do if he's elected again in 2024. And I think for the E.J. Carroll case, you know, this is a generation that grew up during the Me Too era. This is a generation that cares about just basic fundamental rights. And to see a jury say, former President Trump is liable for sexually abusing E.J. Carroll is just something that no young person is going to be okay with. I mean, we don't like people who do that. I mean, you see the response after Dobbs. You see kind of the number of young people who took to the streets and said, you know, enough is enough with sexual assault. And so I think when you look at just this presidency and, and what happened just last week, it's basically everything that young people are kind of scared of and fearful of this country going into. And you don't see that same thing coming from President Biden. I think if there was one winner from last week, it was President Biden because he's just a normal person doing the right thing and doesn't have all these controversies swirling around him. But President Trump and Republicans do. Again, I do believe, I've said this before and I'll say it to you, that Generation Z saved our bacon in 2022. You will not convince me otherwise, and I think a lot of numbers bear that out. That was on the heels, as you talked about, of additional school shootings and the Dobbs decision. So how do you take that mass of young voters who were upset and showed their frustration at the ballot box as they should and not allow that to cool into, you know, maybe it doesn't matter anyway, but to a resolve that is going to get us through the next 18 months? I think Democrats in every single campaign have such an important role to play in this. And you saw this in Wisconsin based off of the issues that they were willing to talk about. I mean, for so long, as you know, this read, I mean, some of the issues that campaigns center are kitchen table issues like, you know, wages and the prices of groceries. I'm not saying those aren't important. But I think what you're seeing now is campaigns and candidates that want to reach young voters should not shy away from more cultural issues, from more just things like abortion rights, from democracy, from gun violence. I mean, those issues are really popular. And I think if you want to reach Gen Zers, you have to talk about those issues because those are the issues that young people are actually activated around. I mean, you look at 2022, the states that saw the highest youth voter turnout, I'm mentioning Michigan specifically because they had an abortion referendum on the ballot. So did Nevada. So did California. You look at the states where abortion was a central part of campaigns. Those are also the states that saw the highest number of young people. It's because young people, I think, kind of realize this moment that we're in and just the fragility of those rights. And we want to see campaigns and elected officials center those things that young people care about. And so I think it's up to Democrats to really never shy away from those issues. You know, still talk about kitchen table issues like 
economics and you know wages and inflation, but also make it a priority to talk about other cultural issues and talk about what Republicans are doing. Like, don't be afraid to call out what Republicans are doing to come after our rights because that's a really powerful thing. And I think also one of the things that's kind of doing, I guess, a lot of work, even though we may not see it, is Republicans across the country and what they're trying to do in states like Tennessee and Nevada, going after elected officials, going after elected officials who come out and say, you know, enough is enough on gun violence and, you know, expelling the two justices in Tennessee. I think that was a very important moment. It was a spectacularly bad idea by a bunch of guys who, listen, all they were missing was a boss hog outfit. Now, it's probably too old <laughs> reference for you, but the people listening will understand what I'm saying. Yes. I mean, I think Republicans are doing a lot of that work for them. I mean, every single time you see an elected official in a Republican state trying to ban college uh, drop boxes, trying to you know, make it harder for young people to access reproductive rights, not doing anything around gun reform. I mean, that's doing a lot of work to show young people that this is a party that just does not care about our lives. And just like, you know, we said earlier, the alternative, the only alternative for young people is the Democratic Party. So I think, you know, Republicans are doing a lot to activate young voters and get them pissed off. But I also think it's up to Democrats to really not be afraid to call them out where they must on those issues and also to engage with us on those issues like abortion and gun reform and, and some of those more cultural issues. You know, I, I think about this, you know, not to get too nerdy on you, but, you know, authoritarian movements necessarily must live in only the present and the past. In the past, because they can tell you that that's a place that was better when their people were in charge. The present, because they must always have a fight. They don't like to talk about the future because the future is not in their control. And that is not to oversimplify it, Victor, but we are fighting for your future. That's what's at stake here. It's fighting for my kid's future. And you are exactly right, which is, you know, there's a young woman on our staff who the day of the Dobbs decision, that Friday morning, she woke up the freest person humanity had ever known. And by the time she went to bed, she wasn't. And she was devastated, as I think a lot of women in this country were. And I think a lot of men, too. And I think that's the one thing where Republicans are now, you know, a snake eating its own tail, which is, they have gone so far over the line on so many of these things. You even saw Trump in both his CNN town hall and just in one of those truth social things the other day, now taking total credit for Roe versus Wade being overturned, right? Now, he's not doing that because, look, I mean, I don't want to talk about Donald Trump and abortions, but let's just be clear. This is not a guy I think who's a, he's not a stranger to it, would be my guess, but because he's worried about his base the evangelical white base. That's all he's ever cared about. He's an old dog. He doesn't want to learn new tricks. And the MAGA train, Victor, only runs in one direction, and it's not in the good direction, right? It's toward darkness, towards badness, towards things that nobody wants. And so I think the other part, too, is this is a fight for the future. And for you and your friends and your cohort and your colleagues, it is the fight for your future. What is the country that you are going to have to grow up in? What is the country that you are going to have to live in, that you're going to have to contend with? And some people say, oh, well, you know, demographics is destiny. It absolutely is, unless the bad guys get there first, in which case it doesn't matter. Because if the bad guys get there first, they will do all they can to ensure that demographics are by far the most important thing for ensuring that some people get to do things, other people don't. And largely that's going to be based on gender, the color of your skin. And the religion, if you practice one, that you practice. And I think that we cannot underestimate the threat that we're facing next year. And I think that you and, you know, your cohort have already really taken in hand that the rest of us and, you know, probably still want to wish for 
you know, this guy to disappear in a puff of smoke, but that's not going to happen. And one of the remarkable things about this is that, you know, Republicans have tried time after time again to go after students and and get the country to be fearful. I mean, you see Republicans like Ron DeSantis going after just things like critical race theory, wokeness, I mean, DEI programs in college campuses and high school. And the thing about Gen Zers is that we really aren't buying into that. I mean, you see Gen Zers basically saying, you know, what you're trying to do, I mean, just is not relevant in our lives. We aren't buying into the narratives that you're trying to push. And so I think young people are a lot smarter than Republicans think. I mean, you have Kelly and Conway and Scott Walker on Fox News the other week saying that, you know, the only way that we can reach Generation Z is if we go on social media and pump out information, then they'll believe us. And that's just not the case. I mean, if they think that they can just reach Generation Z by going on TikTok and offering us Republican talking points, it's just not going to happen. I mean, this is a generation they think, just like you said, is more educated than ever before, more diverse than ever before. We see through what Republicans are doing. And so even though they're trying to reach us first or trying to, you know, control the narrative, young people just aren't buying into it because we want to see people who actually have delivered for us, who kind of have more to say than just words. And that's also what you're seeing right now with gun violence. I mean, every single time a Republican elected official says thoughts and prayers, young people aren't really paying attention. We aren't listening. We want to see action. We want to see people actually deliver for our lives. And Republicans just are not doing that. They have a lot. I, I don't know how they're going to rebound from this because it's going to take a lot of trust to rebuild and a lot of years to, I guess, repair those relationships. Well, listen, let's do this. Let's make sure that in 2024, anyway, they take such a licking that maybe they crawl back into whatever hole they came out of and think long and hard about that. Okay, Victor, before we let you go, where can we find you online and where can we find your group online? Yeah, so I'm mostly on Twitter at VictorShe2020. I'm on other platforms because of what Elon Musk has done. So Mastodon, Spoutable, Post, but I won't name all of my platforms. I mean, until Twitter dies, I guess I'll still be on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, VictorShe2020. And then I also do um, a daily show called On The Move, which Reed has been so kind enough to join me, not once, but twice. So thank you for joining me on that show. And then I co-host a podcast with Joe Weinbanks every Tuesday that drops every Wednesday called iGen Politics. So uh, those are where you can find me. And then also weekly uh, columnist for Resolute Square as well. Well, great. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Victor Sheath, thanks for joining me. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.